Thank you, Blake. You were coughing, so I'm going to stay away from you. But no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be back. Appreciate everybody that uh, was working on keeping our meetings going uh, during the time that we were gone, but we had a chance to go and hang out with all of my kids and grandkids, had all my grandkids in one place, and it was pretty wonderful. So I appreciate the time. Uh, but I appreciate being back here as well. And uh, we got a teaching we want to get into. You know, wealth and spirituality are usually viewed as incompatible pursuits. There's probably, like, probably every religion and philosophy that we know of will have warnings in it about the pursuit of wealth as a goal in and of itself, wealth or possessions. Possessions a lot of times, material possessions. There's something about us. I mean, it says something about us, actually, that you've constantly got to have these warnings to to be careful about about possessions and wealth and things like that because there's something about human beings. We get attached. You know, there's that old phrase about a God-shaped hole, but we easily become attached to things. And, of course, wealth goes along with that because... One cannot get things to become attached to without money. So it becomes one of those things where we're constantly looking for those, uh, those elements of life to satisfy something. I'm somebody who's, you know, I, I, I've worked as an artist and then as a pastor. I'm somebody who's never had much money. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things. I've had people say to me, you gotta get a gun because you gotta protect yourself. And, you know, it's like, what are you gonna do if somebody breaks into your house searching for money? I'd be like, I'm gonna search with them. Cause you never know. Maybe. I haven't looked behind the couch. Uh, somewhere there, somewhere. Anyway, here's the thing. The Bible never vilifies money as a form of exchange. And if we're going to be honest, the world in which we live and the world in which the Bible was written are completely different things. I mean completely. The economy of most of the Western world is built on a consumer model. And if people stopped buying stuff or services, the wheels would quickly fall off of our infrastructure. And that's no fun for anybody to think about. I mean, that's not a happy thought. As I said, the Bible does not vilify money or material things as though they're bad in themselves. What the Bible always addresses is the condition of our hearts and the impact that any given thing, including money, can have on our hearts. How that can begin shaping us into something different from what it was that God intended. What God always wants from us as human beings is our highest loyalty. And that's something we're going to consider this morning. We're continuing in our study in the Gospel of Luke. And if you've got a a Bible or a way of following along, if you want to head over to Luke chapter uh, 15, I'm sorry, chapter 16, please. Mike did such a fantastic job last week dealing dealing with a very difficult passage. (laughs) That's, that's, I'm not dumb. (laughs) Honestly, it's maybe one of the best teachings I've ever heard on that subject. That, you've unpacked that parable really well. And we were encouraged at the end of that to, 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 to graciously share the wealth of God's favor that he's given to us with all people, with everyone, with others. And today we're going to move from a parable where money is used illustratively to Jesus's explicit teachings on money. And this passage is going to contain some of Jesus' strongest warnings about the dangers of wealth or anything else that, that would claim our heart's allegiance. And that is going to be the major theme of this today. 
We're going to be reading a, a string of short, complex teachings, that uh, sayings, really, that, that may have been things that Jesus said regularly. You know, Jesus was traveling for three and a half years, preaching in multiple places. It's very likely that he's repeating the same things at different spots and different times. And so, you know, because we do see these sayings uh, appear in the other Gospels, but in a different context. So it's very likely these are things that fit in this moment, and this is what Jesus was, was talking about. Now, we have to remember what started everything that we're reading here, the string of parables that Jesus told and now these sayings. Back at the beginning of chapter 15, the religious leaders were upset with Jesus. Do you remember that? They were upset with him because Jesus is hanging out with all the wrong people. He's hanging out with people who are considered unclean and unfaithful to God and Israel. And so Jesus was trying to explain his own behavior to the Pharisees, but also expose the folly of religious effort that is independent of God's transforming love. And that's what everything has been about in all of these sections. That was the idea behind the parable that Mike taught on last week and uh, it you know the, the concept is that of liberally giving God's grace instead of doubling down on the rigid religious bookkeeping that we saw happening with the religious leaders but I think just so that we didn't get the wrong idea from Jesus's parabolic use of money he makes himself clear about the place that money should have in the lives of God's people and the hearts of God's people. So this passage is going to, it's going to contain some difficult sayings. And as I think about it, I probably should have assigned this to somebody else too, but you know, the music stopped and I didn't have a chair. So uh, we're going to look at this. So if you are there in Luke 16, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 10. Remember Jesus at first was talking to the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and then he moved to talking to his disciples. And we're still in that context. He's still talking to his disciples, instructing them, which means he's instructing us on his values. So he says, if you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all of this and scoffed at him. Okay, so Jesus is transitioning now from, the, in the, from, this, from this parable to instructive language here. And the ideas of trust and faithfulness appear five times within these three, four verses here. And he's sort of giving us then the theme of what it is that he's talking about, trust and faithfulness. And he he kind of reverse engineers the parable that he just told that we had read about last week. He's sort of saying the fact that the religious leaders aren't being faithful with the spiritual authority and the privilege they were given is revealed in the way that they use the temporal resources that they have. We have all these contrasts, little things versus greater responsibilities, worldly wealth versus the riches of heaven, or other people's things versus things of their own. They weren't being faithful with the little things, which Jesus puts money in that classification. 
And it revealed their unfaithfulness to the important stuff like God's purposes, God's intent, what it is that God is actually up to in this world, which we were invited to participate in. And then Jesus gets to the teeth of his his instructions here. No one can serve two masters. We can't serve God and be enslaved to money. It's a very good translation, I believe, by the NLT because it gets at the heart of what was being said in this. It kind of clears up some of the confusion that has been generated by that passage, being enslaved to the money. The word money is actually the Aramaic word mammon, which usually means wealth or financial profits. So in, in some ways, we could describe this as living for the bottom line. That's what he's talking about here. We can't serve God and also live for the bottom line, what our profit margin is. For, you know, either that's monetarily. We could talk about this in terms of just money, but we also know that expands beyond that. I would say the principle extends way beyond money to all sorts of priorities that are offered to us in this broken world. And I believe the point is that God's kingdom claims our highest allegiance. If we want to be considered God's people, if we want to embrace this idea of following Jesus and claiming him as Messiah, then we have to realize we've got to come to grips with this. And I think we're often way too flippant about this. We've got to come to grips with the reality. His kingdom claims our highest loyalty. And that's what this is all about, allegiance, commitment, and loyalty. Jesus is shaping us into people who will reflect his character into the world, one of integrity and generosity and grace. And if we live in service to other loyalties, like making a monetary profit, we will likely be in conflict with those values, with those traits that Jesus represents. Because I mean, to make the most money, you've got to bend a few rules. You're not going to necessarily have complete integrity to be able to get there. You can't be generous with people because you're not going to get rich by writing checks to someone else. And remember the point. It's talking about living in service to money, living for that bottom line, being enslaved to making a profit as though that is the highest goal. That's the highest good. So this isn't trying to vilify the reality of monetary exchange or vilify someone who may have wealth in in this world. Money isn't the root of all evil. According to Paul in 1 Timothy 6, it is the love of money. But the love of money is the root of all evil, is what Paul says here or there. And I think he's got a point because when we look at the terrible things that humans do to each other in this world, it usually has a financial incentive behind it somewhere. Cheat people to gain their money. People will steal from others to take their money. People will kill other people in order to take what's theirs. Now, the question is, at least the question for me as I was reading this, is what does this have to do with Jesus's fellowshipping with those who were considered sinners. How does this all relate to each other? Uh, You know, that's the issue that started this whole thing. That's what all these parables were leading up to. What does this have to do with any of that? Is this a non sequitur or, or was Jesus getting at something? What does money have to do with how it is Jesus is treating people? And the answer is revealed in the Pharisees' response to Jesus 
and his words about money. Luke says they dearly loved their money and they scoffed at what he said. Literally, they expressed scornful disapproval about what he said. In other words, they disagreed with him and laughed him to scorn. Did this mean that they were openly, like openly putting money before God? It seems like that would have tipped people off, right? Like if they're just openly saying, you and your God. I mean, that would have been one of those signals like, hey, maybe these aren't the people to follow. (laughs) The Pharisees were a populist group, meaning they were seen as reformers. They were the ones arrayed against the the corrupt status status quo. and, and, And they were really popular with grassroots people. And yet we know from historical records and from archaeological research that Many of the Pharisees lived very wealthy lifestyles. They had massive homes compared to the, to the, to the average person. They owned large tracts of land. Uh, so how did this work? How is it that the, the people who were controlling the wealth were also the populist leaders? It's the same way that it works in our day and age. Remember last week, the shrewd manager didn't want to end up begging because because that was seen as a curse from God. A person who was begging was automatically viewed as being cursed. The opposite is true. The opposite was true in their thinking. They believed that if you were rich, then you're blessed by God. For the Pharisees, they, had, they owned large portions of the promised land, and their wealth was seen as God's approval of them. And guys, we are no different today. You can't look back at that and say, oh, man, those poor guys didn't understand. No, wealth is almost always seen as an indicator of God's blessing. I mean, how often do we see that? All the time we see that. Go check out an Instagram account called Preachers and Sneakers. There's a book by that name, too. And, you know, when somebody told me about it, I thought it was a joke. And to my horror, it is not. And it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an Instagram thing where they take pictures of my fellow pastor's shoes. And, and it's usually from large, wealthy churches, but they're sporting shoes that cost thousands of dollars uh, while, they're, while they're preaching. And listen, I'm not here to just cast judgment or, or anything like that. These are my fellow pastors. So I am in a position to be able to critique this and examine this. But there's a problem with this. There's a real problem with this. This goes back to what has morphed the church into something that's almost unrecognizable. There's this grasp for celebrity, this striving for the the favorable public perception, and that is usually tied to how a person is expressed in their in their wealth and, and what they have. It's rooted in this faulty idea that divine blessings are material or are monetary. And, and if it doesn't have the trappings of wealth associated with it, then it's, it's deemed irrelevant or insignificant in some way. So listen, guys, I got to apologize to you. These are like 50 bucks. No, they're not 50. How much did we spend on those, Robbie? Oh, it's supposed to be on Instagram. It's like $30. So I apologize. I feel like that's a lot uh, because normally I don't do that. And that's not to say, see, I got this figured out. I'm just saying that there's this attitude, this mindset that has crept into the church that we've embraced. That's all part of this whole worldly concept of what it is that demonstrates God's favor. 
The Pharisees saw their position of wealth as a sign of God's blessing and favor on them. And they felt justified then in excluding and marginalizing people they deemed as cursed by God because their blessings were evident. They had the sneakers to prove it, which Jesus then leads Jesus to to bring up this great reversal that we have here in verse 15. This is going to be tough stuff, but we've got to think this through. Look at what he says. Then he said to them, you like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. Now he's talking to the religious leaders, remember. And detestable is the key word here because detestable becomes for us then like a hyperlink. It's a word that was used in the Torah over and over again to describe what idolatry was to God. Detestable. It's always, almost exclusively, applied to idolatry. The Pharisees sat in judgment of the people that Jesus was reaching out to when they themselves, Jesus is saying, are guilty of far worse. They were practicing idolatry disguised as righteousness. This world's systems, this is what he's talking about when he says what the world honors. He's talking about the systems that we devise in this world from the time that Adam and Eve left the garden. All through our history, it's always been about the pursuit of self-will, the intention to build paradise without God's interference, without God having to be in the mix, a grasp for a knowledge of good and evil that elevates us above others the way God is elevated giving us power over people. That is what the world's system is all about. And it can be wealth that makes us feel elevated. It can be religion or religious affiliation or political value sets or ethnicity. And Jesus calls that sense of superiority idolatry. On the continuum that measures values, God's kingdom and human pursuits are at opposite ends. Pursuing power or wealth at the expense of God's values simply serves to move us towards idolatry. Why? Because God's values are revealed through Christ in humility, in self-sacrificial love, in grace, in esteeming others as greater than ourselves, How does one get ahead in this world by practicing those things? And I think we make a terrible mistake as the church at large if we think we should practice winning at all costs in order to force God's values or morals on a society. We may think we're doing God's work just like the Pharisees thought they were being blessed by God. But the reality is winning or wealth are not the measurements that we use to determine God's endorsement. They cannot be. Worse, like it was for the Pharisees, it may well be idolatry disguised as righteousness. We cannot expect to advance God's kingdom on earth using the world's methodology. If Jesus overcame this world by going to the cross 
How could we ever have the hubris to believe we can do it some other way? It's very quiet in here. And I told you it was going to be challenging. And I'm really thinking I should have assigned this to someone else. (laughs) And you're probably thinking, I wish someone else was talking right now too. Well, let's just read this last section and then we'll finish up and we'll all feel better. Uh, Verse 16. Jesus says, until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is eager to get in. Honestly, it should have probably been translated as eagerly urged to come in. That's more appropriate with what the Greek is saying there. But that doesn't mean that the law has lost its force. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. For example, if a man divorces his wife and marries someone else, a man commits adultery, and anyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Hold on, we'll get there, okay? That's where we're stopping today. Lovely place to stop, Rob. Thank you very much. I, uh, I didn't write it. Uh, the, the, it's possible that the Pharisees are getting ready to quote to Jesus all the various places in the Hebrew Bible where it does seem as though wealth is equated with God's blessing even though there are just as many quotations from the prophets that Jesus could have returned with that say the opposite, that say that that's not a measurement. And the Bible's kind of funny like that. That's one of those things. It's, it will hold these ideas in tension. And I think there's a, I think there's a brilliance in that, that, that God re- represents it that way. Still, Jesus' relationship to the law it's never quite clear in the Gospels. You know, he's, he's healing people on the Sabbath. He's, he's eating on the Sabbath. He's not washing his hands when he goes to different places. You know, someone could have looked at him and said, I don't think he likes the law. I think he, I don't think, I think he thinks the law was a mistake. So he creates sort of a timeline here to try to help explain and understand. So he sees the law and the prophets, basically what we call the Old Testament, as part of a sequence of events in God's great plan. They aren't God's final words. They held the place of instruction until God's kingdom was going to break into this world in a new way. And that time came after John the Baptist. After John the Baptist, Jesus appears on the scene and the kingdom arrives in a new way. Something new is happening. And that didn't mean that the Old Testament was wrong or now somehow irrelevant. They were firmly fixed, just like a signpost is fixed in the ground, but the signpost is pointing what, to what God was going to do. Even though the law itself couldn't achieve it, it was pointing towards Jesus. All that God was going to do had to be accomplished through Jesus, who didn't set the law aside. I think Mike even mentioned that last week. He didn't set the law aside or declare it irrelevant. He fulfilled it. On our behalf, he fulfilled it for Israel, he, for Israel's mission. He fulfilled its righteous requirements for the human race. The message of the good news is that God has begun the fulfillment of what the law was looking forward to. And we as believers then eagerly urge others to get in on this restoration that God has intended. Now, instead of adherence to a static set of religious codes, now... We are, are shaped by God's Spirit uh, personally, each of us, through convictions, through a thousand different convictions and, and movements internally where God begins to reshape our values and our understanding of ourselves and the world in which we live. But the issue in all of this is still faithfulness, faithfulness with God's purposes 
instead of being faithful to something else like money or faithful to God's purposes instead of trying to look good outwardly or, or being faithful to the Old Testament, which was pointing to Jesus and the work that the kingdom was going to do in restoring all things, the grace that God was revealing. So the, the bottom line to everything that Jesus is saying here is that God is calling us to a life of faithfulness to his purposes, faithful to what it is that God intended. That's what this whole section is about. Now, if you're like me, you're looking at verse 18 thing. well, what was that tacked on at the end of that? What, what's that all about? So here's the thing. The subject, a subject like divorce and remarriage, that requires so much time to delve into. I, I've covered this in our teachings before in Matthew 19 and Mark 10 in 1 Corinthians 7, the other places where divorce or remarriage is, is talked about. Um, and, and there's a lot more going on here than what is represented just in this one passage in Luke. It's way too easy just to grab this passage on the surface and start applying it without regard to the other passages that there are on this subject or without regard to the cultural and historical setting in which this, this statement emerged. And we have to be much more sensitive as the church when it comes to this subject, when it comes to this issue. Because I, I, I just know, I mean, I've certainly seen this. It's not something that, that personally I don't have a, a you know, a, an issue in this, in this, in my own experience, but I've walked through this with so many people and I do believe the church has done some real harm to people over this issue. And I don't believe that's what Jesus was intending when he made these remarks. I don't think that Jesus was trying to institute a, a new law that was even more strict than the old covenant law. There's a whole backstory to what it is that he's saying here. I can just briefly outline it, but it's barely scratching the surface. There's so much more to it. But Deuteronomy 24 provided the option for a man to divorce his wife. Now, it wasn't vice versa. Women didn't enjoy that privilege. Only men could do that. And, and the divorce carried with it an automatic right to remarry. That wasn't even in question. By Jesus's day, that right of divorce was being so widely exercised that many women who didn't have that right, who couldn't make that sort of choice, were being put into very vulnerable situations. Being older and without any sort of family support system, they found themselves suddenly all alone and, and, and very vulnerable in a, in a, in a patriar- patriarchal world. The provision of Deuteronomy 4 was honestly so vague in the law that rabbinical writings of Hillel from that time concluded that burning the toast was sufficient grounds to go ahead and and divorce uh, your wife. It basically says if if, if she no longer finds favor in his eyes, well, what's that mean? Well, you know, if she burns the toast, you know, I like my toast. So, you know, so it was rampant. In Jesus's day, it was rampant. What was happening was men were growing tired of the wives that they married in their youths and they were looking around for newer ones and they were using that part of the law to justify leaving one in order to go to another. Does that make sense? Do you see what was happening? And that's what Rabbi Shammai condemned, which is what Jesus agreed with. Jesus is agreeing with Rabbi Shammai in this, to divorce a wife because one found someone they liked more was just committing adultery with a religious stamp on it. 
That was at the heart of this. And it actually circles back. You understand why he said it. It circles back to what Jesus said when he said, you'll love the one and hate the other. The ideal for marriage is a lifetime of faithful commitment. But that's the ideal. And and there's a lot of things that fall short of the ideal in this world. That's why grace is so important and so so vitally important to all of us. And like I said, that's a brief and a, a very minimal explanation of the issues being addressed here. But since faithfulness was the core of that issue, Jesus is using it to point out the hypocrisy of his critics. This was just another case where they used the law. They used the religion that they were part of to their own advantage which at its heart is being unfaithful to God's purposes, even though outwardly it looked righteous. It looked good. It sounded good. It was saying all the right things. It checked all the right boxes. And yet Jesus is saying it's far from God. It's far from being faithful to what he's all about. In fact, I think he employed the subject of marriage and adultery as an indirect accusation Uh, towards them, accusing the religious leaders of infidelity to God's intent. Let me quote N.T. Wright. He said, as soon as we begin to think of money or land or other people as commodities we might own or exploit, we take a step away from our vocation to be truly human beings, God's true children, and towards the other master who is always ready to accept new servants. So Jesus presents us with a challenge of allegiance. Who or what will claim our loyalty, our highest loyalty? Who or what will we be faithful to? Who or what will we be willing to sacrifice our own position, our own rights in order to be allegiant and faithful to? kingdom of God is breaking into this world and it comes with a full reversal of the normal human scale of values. So our challenge is to commit our hearts, to commit ourselves, to be faithful to God's purposes according to his values. We can't be faithful to his purposes without being faithful to his values. We're going to find ourselves serving someone we didn't anticipate. Let's yield our self-will to God's will. Let's be careful about the place that little things like money could have in our heart. And let's yield our hearts more fully to God. Who knows? I mean, who knows what he'll do with faithful hearts like those? We st- Father, just right here as we're, as we're here before you, having looked at your word, having read the words of Jesus, instructions to us, I just want to pray for all of our hearts, mine included. We bring our hearts before you, Lord, because you know how messy we get. You know what a mess we can make of things how easy it is for us to to shift our devotion and loyalty to something or someone that is not you. Lord, 
it's so hard to keep our thinking straight. To remember that you're in charge of all things and that our own sense of wholeness is only going to come from you. From our connection and faithfulness to you. So help us, Lord, just as we stand here this morning, on this chilly morning, help us to remember what's really important. Lord, we take those things that may have claimed an improper place in our priorities. We take them now. And as an act of our will, Father, we cast them like crowns before your feet. We acknowledge you as king. We acknowledge you as Lord of our lives. And we ask you, Lord, to make the difference. We ask you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of glory, to make the difference in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We yield to your spirit. We give ourselves to you. Use us in this world, Lord, to demonstrate your grace. Use us in this world, Father, to show your love and mercy for the human race. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.